Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Timothy Saunders is my guest today. He's an associate professor, part of the Mechanobiology Institute, all this at National University of Singapore. I'm going to talk about uh, morphology, you know, how living organisms uh, create and achieve their shapes, know when to start, know when to stop. So that's what we're going to go into. So Tim, thanks for coming. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so tell me in your own words about your research. What are you looking at? We try to understand how complex organ shape emerges in development. So as you're all hopefully aware that each of your organs has a specific shape and a specific size, which has been optimized over evolution to work as well as possible to do the job it needs to do. And so we try to understand how those shapes actually emerge in the first place. And we use model systems, so the fruit fly, Drosophila, and zebrafish, as ways to look at these processes. The two particular systems we look at are the formation of the heart. So even a little fruit fly has a heart, although not much smaller creatures do. And remarkably, the very first stages of heart formation are highly conserved. So we can learn a lot about how the human heart forms and looking at the very beginnings of fly heart formation. Of course, later it gets a lot more complicated and not so relevant. And then we use the zebrafish to look at how the skeletal muscle forms. So the muscle alongside your backbone, how does it uh, get specified and positioned during development. And so those are our two main research focuses. If we look at uh, people seen on, I guess, Wikipedia, there's been about 120 billion people that have ever lived. Nearly all of them have one heart, not two, one liver, not two. The liver's on the right side if they look down, you know, with the gallbladder on the left or middle is pancreas. So the organs are all the same. Pretty much the shape is almost the same. Their relation to each other in the body is the same. You know, you don't have like your heart in your left arm or anything or on your lower back. How does this happen? How could cells know how to make these shapes over and over and over again over such long time periods? Very good question. And it's one that people have been asking for a very long time. So uh, there's a famous book by Darcy Wentworth Thompson now over 100 years ago called On Growth and Form. He tried to come up with sort of basic rules for how you can sort of make these shapes. And he was looking at a very sort of organism scale approaches but what's really happening nowadays is we're beginning to explore at the cell level what's really happening to make sure that development happens as it does and we actually call this robustness but the term stolen from engineering to try to understand how do developing organisms robustly develop and so the classic example has been facial positioning as you kind of already mentioned how do cells know where they are and there was a concept called the morphogen gradient that is a gradient of molecules that have different concentrations at different locations. And then the cells respond to those concentrations differently at a genetic network. But it also turns out nowadays that people are beginning to conjecture that there also may be a mechanical process. And by interpreting this data and then by interacting with their neighbors, they can actually then begin to robustly position inside a cell. And it turns out really that Biology makes mistakes all the time. So as it's positioning cells, positioning tissues, there are errors. And a lot of what our genome encodes, and actually, as again, a really emerging theme nowadays is the role of mechanics. So our both 
gene genomic elements and also mechanical elements kind of recognize when things are mispositioned and help to then put it back where it belongs. And so a lot of what goes on in development is actually error correction. But how could, again, how could this be contained in the genes? You know, if I'm making a liver, the cells know when to start and when to stop. And how do they know that, okay, we've formed this lobe of the liver, it's big enough, stop, stop dividing, <laughs> so, you know, and, and maybe die selectively to make the right shape and you know, now work on this part. So it's believed that uh, mechanical tension may well be playing a role. So as the organ grows to a specific size, you can almost imagine a little bit like a balloon filling up. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's okay. So of course, as the balloon gets bigger, there's an increase in tension on the outside. And we now know there are what are called mechanosensitive pathways. So these are signaling pathways within the cell. And the most famous example is called the hippo-yap pathway, which responds to changes in mechanical stress. And so as this mechanical stress inside the cell or the tissue changes, that changes these mechanosensitive pathways, which then actually have an effect on the genome. So one way that an organ knows when to stop is this sort of mechanical feedback. Another increasing theme in, in recent years has been this idea that there's organ-to-organ -organ communication. So we do not, our body does not develop in a vacuum. Each organ is not kind of in its own little world and ignoring what's going on around. And the organs are communicating with each other. Now, this has been known to, for a while in terms of hormones, so they secrete hormones during development. But also recently, including work from my lab, has shown that, in fact, interactions between organs mechanically can also help guide their morphogenesis. And so this is what makes it both very interesting and extremely difficult. So it's very interesting to understand, to try to understand the questions you're posing, but the answers are very challenging because yeah. really it is, everything is kind of integrated together to, to make Yeah, I, I think this is, it goes way beyond just mechanical sensing because I mean, you know, my organs are formed and for the most part, you know, again, they don't change. And you know, what if I was, it's a hundred years ago, I was a woman that wore a corset, you know, my organs would move around in reaction to that constant strain, but they wouldn't necessarily grow or maybe change shape. You know, I, I sit, I lay, I stand, I run, I do all kinds of mechanical things, and yet my organs don't change shape. Inflammation itself, persistent inflammation in someone's body, I think would, you know, if that was true, it would change the shape of their organs. And I don't know if that's, that's observed. Yeah. So in humans, it's kind of interesting. Number one, in the, in, in the animal world, we're not particularly interesting when it comes to the adult form, in that only our liver can really regenerate to a degree, which frankly, for those who drink heavily, is, is the case. But so most of our organs are not really able to, to recover from injury and damage. Regarding your point about whether we put constraints on ourselves, of course, as adults, if we don't exercise properly or when we're sat at our desk and we slouch over our keyboard, we actually develop our muscular structures in our shoulders and so on actually reconfigure and then you get permanent problems in terms of your your posture and then you get backache so we can get changes in our organ structure um, particularly at the muscular level and the bone level but yeah internal organs don't tend to change so much but during development it's a lot different in the sense of you're trying to get from this single cell to this something that can be born or to to leave the egg and there of course you've got massive growth and you've got huge rearrangements happening all at the same time and so there this coordination is much more important in a sense and how the embryo reacts to that is is really an interesting but rather unknown question and it has many what do you what do you think the the feedback mechanism is it's not just pressure i would think what if there's yeah. a quorum sensing yeah type, so, you know uh, where x number of cells are on this side versus that and, you know ion channels in the cells maybe uh, altering the electric field that other cells can sense and on and on basically there's almost seems to be as many solutions as there are 
systems, but there are some general themes emerging. So in recent years, work from my lab, but also many others, including Tony Tsai and so on, have shown that, for example, different cells express different adhesion molecules. So essentially, there are different levels of stickiness to their surrounding cells. And they kind of want to stick next to cells of the same type and get not be next to the ones of a different stickiness. And so this actually drives a way that cells can kind of feel around their local environment, discover who they should be next to, and then rearrange. And so this is a way that they can correct for errors. And so that's kind of a more local mechanical idea. It's not necessarily pressure as a whole, but locally each individual cell can kind of sense its local mechanical environment and then kind of probe that and then say, okay, I want to be next to this person, not this cell, not this cell. And then they, they adjust. And actually kind of a lot of these ideas, it's a kind of a very interesting field because a lot of these ideas are coming from plants. Because of course in plant, you can observe the leaf growth, for example, and how it coordinates the growth of the leaf in a nice way, which is often much simpler than it is in animals. But yet, actually, many of these concepts about orientated cell divisions, cell and cell positioning is actually coming from, from the plant field, which is kind of an interesting thing where we often ignore that in biology. So what well if I if I go back in time to, you know, in a human again, sperm and egg meet the blastula or whatever it's called, the embryo, you know, it's, it starts uh, dividing and the cells build up and then structures start forming. But at the point where you go beyond two cells or four cells, now things need to start orienting themselves in a particular way. How do you think that's accomplished? How do the cells know, okay, you go there, you go in this side, and then you start acting out this body plan? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. It depends on the organism, but in many systems where the sperm entered is a site of symmetry breaking, as we'd call it, in the egg. So from that location, you actually get specific waves of activation. And you kind of mentioned earlier calcium signaling. So you can get specific waves emanating from that position. And that can actually start to define an axis. In the case of the fruit fly, where the sperm entered actually ends up defining the, the head of the embryo. And then what happens is that that region then starts expressing specific proteins, uh, these morphogens I alluded to earlier. And they then, they're in higher concentration in the anterior, and then they diffuse across the embryo to so their lower concentrations elsewhere. And so that starts to give what's a term known as positional information. And actually, the person who coined that, Lewis Wolpert, sadly recently passed away. But the idea here is that the cell takes advantage of, or the embryo takes advantage of asymmetries, which can be from where the sperm entered, for example. And then from that can generate the specific positional information that then tells cells what to do. Okay, so what are you looking at in uh, fruit flies and in zebrafish? What, what kind of experiments are you running? What are you trying to figure out? So in the fruit fly, we're really interested in the very first stages of heart formation. So the heart forms from essentially two parallel lines of cells that come across from the mesoderm precursor, and then they meet generally towards the midline of the embryo. And from there, 
they then undergo significant morphogenesis in the case of humans to form chambers and valves in the, in the heart. But that initial stage of two parallel lines of cells coming together is conserved all the way from fruit flies to humans. And in the case of the fruit fly, it's actually the stage of a simple tube. Uh, doesn't need a very complicated heart. What's also very interesting is that the genes that specify these types of heart cells are also highly conserved. In Drosophila, the famous one is called Tin Man, because if you lose Tin Man, you don't have a heart, like in the Wizard of Oz. In humans, the gene is called NKX2.5, which is slightly less interesting. But this is highly conserved. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at that early phase of heart formation in Drosophila as a means to try to understand how the heart initially forms. And in particular, how do these migrating lines of cells actually match up and form a stable structure? Because if they don't form a stable structure, then the heart is unable to beat. And so we do a lot of, in my lab, we specialize really in a lot of live imaging. So we do a lot of microscopy and we can image these cells at extremely high resolution, even though they're deep inside the embryo. And then we use perturbative techniques like optogenetics, where we can use light to change the specific behavior of proteins and also laser ablation, which is literally shooting a laser, high power laser and breaking connections between cells to uh, measure the mechanical forces that are going on. And so really half my lab focuses on what are the initial processes which build the heart in its first stage. Then in the second half of my lab focuses on formation of the vertebrate myotome. So that's essentially your back muscles alongside your vertebra. And in the case of fish, these are really interesting in that if you eat salmon or you have sashimi at the next time you go for sushi, you'll see that the, the meat structure has a beautiful chevron-like shape. Uh, so the meat is not just in simple straight lines. It's actually got angles running through it and looks like a chevron. And this is, seems to be quite common in, in all swimming vertebrates, as far as we know. Like I'm sure there are exceptions, but most swimming vertebrates seem to have this sort of chevron-like shape. And it's believed to, to optimize for swimming, because if you want to always flip your tail in the same repeated motion, it kind of makes sense to align your muscles in a specific manner. And my lab is trying to understand how you form the muscles in a specific orientation and how does the tissue reshape in order to form, form this chevron shape. And we actually, I think very recently showed that that's caused by two processes. One, the, your myotome as it forms is interacting differently with surrounding tissues. Essentially, it sticks more to others, uh, other neighboring tissues. And so because of different levels of stickiness, essentially, that helps to drive the shape formation. And also, there's active stress. And what I mean by that is the cells, because they're muscle cells, they want to elongate. They want to form these nice long fibers that we know of in our muscle. And as they're doing that, that's generating force inside the tissue. And that's actually also helping to drive this formation of the chevron. Okay. So, I mean, do you think that uh, this is based on epigenetic marks? You know, once a creature is at a, or when a creature is at certain stages that help guide this development or you know is it just in the genes and if so again how do they know when to stop when to turn off and where to go yeah so the stages we look we look at very early in development although some epigenetic processes are important i don't think they play such a big role here but the the question about how do they know when to turn off yet yeah, this is the key one and i actually i made some notes and my, my very first note is genes does not equal morphogenesis if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so I think to go back to like sort of actually the, there's some celebration, I think it's 20 years since the publishing of the human genome. And people were then like, oh, okay, we've now solved it, right? And it's like we had the phone book, but it doesn't tell you how you actually get structured. You know, just because you've got a list of all the genes, that doesn't tell you how something works. You've got to understand how they interact. And then I think a key 
thing that's come up in the last 15, 10, 10, 15 years is that these genes generate mechanical proteins that have an effect. And then that's really, you can't just by knowing the genes say, okay, I know that this cell will do this. And so these concepts like mechanical feedback and long range effects becoming really important. And I think the concept, again, it's one that's stolen from physics is this one of emergent anonymous. So you can't know how a magnet will behave just by knowing a single electron, just like you can't know how an organ will develop just by knowing the genes. And you have to be able to integrate mechanics with this genetic regulation. And in fact, something that's really exciting is some labs have been showing now that, in fact, the mechanics feeds back on the genes. So by sensing the stress, you then change the the genes which are being expressed in the cell, and then you can actually change results. So then to answer your question finally about how do they know when to stop and so on. Partly it is this mechanical feedback. Partly, actually, one thing that my lab has shown is that cells migrate and they change position. And in fact, by changing position, they change where they are in relation to the morphogen gradients that I was mentioning earlier. And so, in fact, you can sort of time when a cell stops responding to a morphogen by essentially it just moves away from the source. And so essentially after some time, it's almost like, you know, it's in the car and it's once it's outside the radio signal range of the radio station, you lose the signal and then it doesn't respond to that. And so then it kind of fixes in place. But what, what's different about cells that are um, actively engaged in morphogenesis and ones, let's say, in the periphery, you know, their job is done. Mm-hmm. What If you look at them, what's different about them? So that's a hard question to answer because I think often what we're beginning to appreciate is that we can't exclude all these factors. And I think a good example is in the, the myotome formation. So above the myotome is the skin. This is an epithelial tissue. So in terms of in biological speaking, it's about as simple as it gets. Your skin is this nice, simple layer of cells. And that the myotome can does essentially develop independent of the skin. But in terms of its shape and its deformation, we, it requires that pressure from above to maintain uh, its structural integrity. So you can take out a segment of the cells and they will continue to develop for a while and undergo sort of the cell differentiation program for a small period of time, but they don't have anything resembling the correct shape as a tissue as a whole. And so, yeah, one thing that we're increasingly realizing is that we can't kind of just ignore (laughs) the surrounding parts, even though they may be quite boring. So the the epidermis in the early embryo is quite a boring tissue. It's kind of just covering the the animal and keeping the shape defined, at least in the zebrafish embryo. But it's still playing an important role in, in providing boundary conditions and constraints on the tissues developing underneath. But again, like, what you know, has this been looked at? have people looked at cells that again they're done for the moment at least and forming some kind of structure and compared to the ones that are still you know growing and moving and developing and again if so what what is the difference is there epigenetic differences you know there's different markings that they have uh, is there that you just can't tell what the differences are like what <laughs> i think the the question is very interesting and for a long time it was technologically too difficult to answer and that we couldn't image a wide enough field with high enough resolution to kind of get at it. In recent years, there's a technology called light sheet microscopy, which enables uh, large-scale imaging with high resolution with also very quick imaging, which is making a big difference in terms of we can now image a field of view of about a millimeter square, which doesn't sound very big, but for an embryo, that's a very large field. And then we can actually image these multiple tissues and see how they interact. And so we are beginning to actually get a handle on it and The idea is to then look at essentially correlative imaging where you look at the behavior of one tissue relative to the other and how they interact. And so from that mechanical point of view, I think we're beginning to get a handle on it. Now, from your question about the epigenetic side and the sort of, I guess you could argue the gene regulatory side, 
I would say that's still largely un, undeveloped. Like we kind of know that there must be interactions. And as I mentioned earlier, we know that there are hormonal signals shared between these organs, but how that is regulated, in particular how it's regulated robustly, to come back to the very first question we discussed, how do you make it make sure that it happens correctly? That really is an unknown, unknown at the moment, I would say in, in virtually all, all developing organs. Have there been any de facto experiments where people that um, they've had part of their liver resected, did it grow back properly? Uh, were there instances where it didn't? And you know what went on where, that, where it didn't grow back properly? Could they figure out why? Or if you could do salamanders and like chop off their leg and stuff and see if it grows perfectly right alter the conditions to see if it grows differently you know yeah so i don't i don't know about the the human case um and so i won't speculate but in terms of a classic example of regeneration is fin clipping in fish so you you cut the fin off and then you look at regrowth and one of my colleagues here in singapore christoph winkler uh, studies this and it is actually truly remarkable so they have images where they take an adult fish you can show the they can measure the adult fish before cutting the fin they cut off the fin and then over the course of the next few weeks to a month i believe the fin goes back to almost exactly what it looked like before and this is incredible and i still find quite remarkable and i guess the question that you've asked before about you know how does it know when to stop and that's still not known we know that when you cause that injury you get local activation of specific signals and that starts the regeneration program but we know the regeneration in animals that can regenerate is remarkably robust but how it does it is still a big question well what, what are your thoughts i mean how do you think it's doing it well one of the theories that we have is that it is mechanics again so as the tail grows as the fin grows back then or the, the limb then essentially it's receiving, it's, as it's growing out further, it's causing more and more mechanical tension. And essentially there becomes a point where that tension increases beyond what it's uh, able to actually generate as a new force to push out further. So that's one option. Another is we know that these morphogens are, are critically important in these processes and they may have a localized signaling center. And just that, again, once it's grown out beyond that, then there may be some signal to, to stop. And of course, maybe more related to we know that often in regenerating tissues, there are, are waves of signaling, so calcium waves, and also there's another pathway called the ERK pathway, where there's been some very beautiful recent work uh, from Ken Poss and Vitalia Labs, where they really show that there's these waves of ERK activation, and these, these waves may actually be providing the spatial information needed to tell the, the tissue when to, to stop regrowth. And of course, probably the reality is it's a combination of all of these things. <laughs> Yeah, but there's also different cell types within a given organ. It's not just a monolithic single cell type. So, I mean, beyond mechanical signaling, how do you know? Okay, next cell type, take this spot. Next no, cell no, type. You know? Absolutely. It's, uh, and I think that's, that's a question that people kind of ignored for quite a long time. And then there's a number of, number of very, and again, it comes back to more, not because people weren't asking it, but because it was very hard to answer. But we now have much better genetic tools where we can label individual cells and we can also distinguish these different cell types. And so the Megason lab at Harvard recently showed that there's a adhesion code in the neural tube. So as, the, as your, essentially your nervous backbone nervous system is forming, the cells can identify each other based on how they're adhering and then move around and adjust. And so we know that these are happening and we also know that cells, which in the very early embryo, so we're talking about two, four, eight cell stage, they express very specific transcription factors. 
and these can interact with each other. These cells can therefore kind of essentially interact with each other by pathways such as the delta notch pathway. And then these mean that these cells can kind of turn on and off. And then the classic example of that is a process called lateral inhibition. The delta notch pathway, essentially if one cell is on, it can turn off its neighboring pathways from, from going under a, a similar fate. And a consequence of that, for example, is, is hair distribution. So not all your cells that you're, you don't have skin cell, hair cells everywhere on your skin, you have them spaced out. And that's partly due to this process of lateral inhibition, where essentially once a cell determines it will form a hair follicle, it essentially uh, inhibits all the neighboring cells from doing the same. And therefore, that's one way that you can get nicely patterned systems. So could you say that if you imagine cells as a brick wall, the mortar between the cells is customized based on where in the, in the morphology or the organ creation you're at and different types of mortar saying the cell membrane is the base for the mortar and the mortar is these different adhesion proteins. And therefore that kind of governs what will stick next. And, you know, cells are, I guess, freely migrating or migrating to the spot and based on the mortar type, they, they adhere or not in the right spot. So we would, I guess the, in this analogy, we would call the mortar, the extracellular matrix. And this is a, so the ECM, and this is a really interesting Material, it's made up of many different proteins. And yeah, so again, you're absolutely right. So they can, what we are now finding out is that the cells and the tissues themselves have different ECMs around them. And by tuning that level of ECM, they can change their interactions. And so to go back to my fish work, what we know is that the, the myotome, the ECM, so this mortar between forming skeletal muscle and the neural tube is different from the skeletal muscle and the notochord, which is another organ in the fish. And so by having different ECM components, they can therefore affect the interactions between these. And it can be both a sort of genetic interaction, but it can also be uh, more often than not a mechanical one. And I guess also too, in, in going along with the adhesion proteins, like you said, there's different ligands that may be expressed. So you could also think of it maybe as Lincoln logs too. There's notches essentially in the cell membrane where not only certain things will adhere, but they'll they'll bind and they'll adhere, let's say. So I guess there's many different characteristics of the exterior cell membranes that might govern stacking and the, the arrangement of cells as well. And I think one of the things that's really interesting here is that this analogy is good, but it's fundamentally a passive analogy. So if you think about it, we kind of build a brick wall and we and we click things into place and then we kind of assume that they stay there. What's kind of cool about biology is it was what we call an active system. And this is actually bringing in some new physics ideas where, yes, the cells have kind of a code where they want to match up with other cells or to, to make certain structures, but they have to actively do that. So in, in this case, the bricks themselves are physically moving themselves around without someone externally picking up the brick and moving it to, to match up the partner. And so this is a process we could call self-organization, which is a very interesting idea, which we're beginning to see. And I'm not aware, don't, don't know if you're aware of organoids. So this is where people try to grow organs in a dish. We've actually been showing that these organoids can self-organize. So they can generate structures that look like what they should look like inside the organism with, you know, remarkably well. The, the first ones didn't. The first ones looked like blobs on a plate. But as they managed to tune the signaling inputs and, in fact, the correct uh, extracellular matrix and surround, these organs are now starting to really look like the organs themselves and so that's quite and it's a very exciting thing and i think it's very nice because it's also bringing in new physics so there's whole many many groups working on trying to develop how do you model active systems so they have basically you know how does a brick wall build itself rather than have someone build it for you for it 
I mean, you said organs would talk to each other. So I bet you, if you try to grow an organoid without all the corresponding organs around it, signaling it and the rest of the host, the rest of the body of whatever creature it is, you'd probably get a different result than if you have all the proper signaling in place from the entire creature and it's in context, you know? This is a very interesting question, and it kind of there's a lot of debate in the field when people show organoids. It's like, well, how realistic is it? You know, just because it looks a bit like the real thing. And I think it's actually very interesting to ask, what do I need to build up in order to get it to to actually start to replicate a, a real organ? So in recent years, there have really been a lot of advances, and that's in terms of people using more microfabrication, so sort of building chambers which are kind of trying to replicate that extra organ environment so that the organ kind of thinks it's in the right place, so to speak. And that's definitely having an impact. And also people are now, we can add very specific signaling molecules. And a big change in recent years as well has been, the, and it kind of really links into your question, that people started to build organoids by not just taking the cells of the specific organ, but then also the surrounding cells. And unsurprisingly, they find that once they start including those on top, then their organoids look a lot more realistic. <laughs> and start displaying correct cell cell types and so on. And so it's very it's a really interesting field because we can start to ask, you know, what's the minimum that we need in order to build a sort of reasonably reasonable approximation of an organ. And so it's probably you don't need to have everything, right? but you definitely need more than just the cells from that specific organ. And yeah, it's a it's a very interesting field at the moment. So what what is the bare minimum necessary? Like, you know, um if you have a a blob of cells and a failed organoid, essentially, or just a mediocre one, what do they add that makes it better? And, and can they quantify specifically, okay, we had this, it gets 10% better. We had that, now we're really getting close. You know, I think, and this is because I, this is not quite my field, so I'll be careful, but I believe that there's some groups that could probably argue they can answer that. And in particular, I think in the gut organoid field, which is probably one of the most uh, mature ones, they can really grow villi, the sort of gut protrusions that really look quite realistic and display a lot of the characteristics that we know are happening in the gut inside the the adult. And the gut's a very interesting one because in the adult, it's turned over very rapidly. I can't remember exactly how fast it is in humans, but I think it's on the order of a few weeks, your gut is completely turning over because of course it's a very harsh environment. And so the gut organoid field, I think really can actually sort of begin to now look at what constraints they need, what physical constraints on the organoid and also what chemical inputs they need to actually grow that. And I think in that field, they can can actually get pretty close. I don't want to give numbers because I'm not 100% certain on that, <laughs> but I would say that's probably the most mature one. In a lot of the other fields, like, you know, in terms of muscle and brain organoids, uh, it's still very much a forming field. And a lot of the work there is showing that they can reproduce the correct cell types. And that's quite, that's a real achievement, to be honest. And then I think the next step now is to see now that we can get the correct cell types forming in these organoids, can we now get them to form really correct structures? And that's a that's a major challenge. What do you mean the correct cell types are forming? You mean that if a, if a particular organ, well, yeah, so they you, usually do substructures. Like, they don't do like a whole liver or a whole gut. Yeah, so it, well, it comes back to what you said that, uh, you know, earlier about there being multiple cell types. So what in most of these fields, what you do is you start with stem cells and then those stem cells differentiate. And what you want them to do is differentiate into the three or four main cell types that that organ has. Right, essentially. Right. And that's what they're looking at. And then in the case of the gut, really, they can really get it to be quite remarkable. They have a core of gut stem cells at the base of the villi, and they can kind of reproduce these structures. And yeah, the images, at least I've seen in papers, are quite remarkable. 
So they're able to, okay, for the substructure they're making, they're able to get the, the right cell types to appear there, I guess, maybe in the right ratios, et cetera. And, yeah. and, and different, okay. different, different organs are at different levels of uh, maturity in terms of the organized, the organized work. Interesting. Okay. So where do you sense the, uh, the breakthroughs going to be with your work? I hope with my work, I think a major question that we're trying to answer at the moment in the heart formation is how it is the first lumen form. So the lumen is a, is a tubular structure. So many of our organs are full, full of lumen and many lumen form by fluid pressure. So two cells come together and essentially they pump fluid in between the gap between them. And essentially that kind of inflates out like a balloon and forms a, a tubular structure. Uh, the heart doesn't seem to do that. The heart actually seems to physical reshaping of the cells to kind of form this round uh, lumen structure in the middle. And so um, that's where my lab is really going to try to focus now in the next five years. And I think it's an important question because in biology, we realize that you know, many, there are many solutions for the problems. And although lumen formation has been well studied in the heart, it's, it's the way poorly understood. And well, actually, you, you, you just pointed out something interesting. Um, I know the, you know, when there's heart damage, there's hypertrophy yeah. of the cells, if that's the right word. So what does the heart look like in that case? If you get big fat cells or, you know, an adipose tissue, I guess they don't really make structures. I don't know if they do, but at least in the heart, if you get hypertrophy, you know, what does that look like? How much does that change the heart and how? So I'm not sure about that specifically, but the heart is actually, at least in humans, is really bad at healing itself. And in fact, right. many human adult heart diseases are related to developmental defects. So actually I have, a, I have an ectopic heartbeat. So I have a scar on my left ventricle which is a cause during development. And it basically means that I have a, a third small heartbeat and it doesn't affect my health and it's totally fine. But the human heart is actually unable to correct for that. And of course, you can have far more severe heart defects than that. And it's an area where I think long-term, what we really want to get at is how can we try to get the heart to regrow and, and to repair itself. And I have a project in the lab where we're trying to actually take advantage of the hippo-yap pathway, something I mentioned earlier, to see if we can kind of activate that in an injured heart to kind of repair, to repair it. And I think that's where, I know what I'm doing in my research, where I'm focused on is I, I try to understand how the very earlier stages of formation happen. And in the long term, I hope that what that means is that we can start to then, when injuries happen in the adult, we can say, well, look, this is how the embryo would have solved it. Can we try to use similar concepts to try to see if we can heal it? Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge. <laughs> Well, the reason why I say it again is that, you know, the people that have hypertrophy, you know, yes, sure, the heart doesn't heal well, I understand, but they're able to still live in that condition for quite a period of time, not in a healthy state, but what is the heart doing? How is it changing shape and how are the cells rearranging if so, or, you know, how does a scarred organ assimilate that information and still continue to function? You know, what's different about it? So it's something maybe to look at. That is a, it's a very good question. The, I guess there's a couple of key points. So one, of course, is, you know, it just doesn't work as well. So we know in these people that, you know, blood pressure has changed and uh, circulation is definitely a lot weaker. And so the, it's not able to repair itself up to a decent level. But I guess the point is that our heart works best than the absolute minimum that we need. I guess the, the point there is that we have some leeway in our, in our morphogenesis. And the human heart is actually kind of weird in this regard. And that if we actually look at the total number of heartbeats during an animal's life, this is actually pretty constant across most species. So basically, longer lived animals have slower heartbeat. Lived animals have very fast heartbeats. So if you multiply the heartbeat rate times the lifetime, it's actually pretty constant across almost all species. 
with the exception of just a couple of organisms, one of which is human. So our heart beats about two to four times more during our lifetime than would be expected for other organisms. And we actually don't know why this is, but the human heart does actually seem to be pretty robust, able to keep going longer than most species. And it's something that I would be very interested to understand why, but we, we, we don't know what the cause of that is. Yeah, basically, if our heartbeat is the same as a mouse, then we would we would, should all be dead by, by 50, 40 to 50. But thankfully, it doesn't. <laughs> it keeps going longer. Tim, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, so I guess I publish in, in most scientific journals. I try to make my work as open access as possible. Often, you can go to something called the Bio Archive, where my paper is usually available. And I try to do things like this and actually publicize the work. But I think there's been a lot of recent exciting commentaries and I've even seen articles in like the Guardian newspaper in the UK about how people are beginning to realize the importance of mechanics in morphogenesis both in development and also now increasingly in in the adult and one thing that I'm doing for example is I'm actually leaving Singapore sadly soon I've had a great eight years here but I'm going to move back to the UK but I'm actually moving to a medical school and it's one thing I want to start to try to actually see if I can work with clinicians to bring some of these ideas from the very basic organism but can they actually be relevant to, to humans? And that's a, that's a very big step and we'll see how it goes, but it's certainly going to be exciting. Mm. Okay, well, very good. Tim, it's been a really interesting call. This is a subject that not uh, researched very much so far as I know, but uh, you know, thanks for shedding light on it. And I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.